and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hello, Anita. Hi, Terry. We're going to start this episode by reading a few posts from our Facebook page that work to introduce today's theme. The first is a quote from Jennifer Thompson, who says, The mess you work so hard to hide may be just what someone else needs to see today to know that they're not alone. The second, by Jonathan Lewis Dent, is, Imagine if we measured success by the amount of safety that people felt in our presence. Mm. Today, we reintroduce you to Jordan, who embodies both those quotes. He's letting us see his mess so that we all know we're not alone. By sharing so intimately and shamelessly, he makes us and the people he encounters in his crisis work feel safe. Jordan says the years and the ways he hid his deep sadness made his mental health even worse. It was only when he committed to recovery that he was able to change his life and to now help others do the same. His mental health journey is what allows him to connect and build trust on such a deep and healing level by saying eight powerful words to people. I have been right where you have been. Here is Jordan giving his voice to depression. I remember like as a as a kid just being like overly sad and like not knowing what it was. I remember like when I was in middle school and high school going I played soccer. I remember going to like the soccer field and just crying and crying and crying and nobody was there. And I don't really know why I was crying or why I was sad, but I just like needed that. Um but I didn't know yeah, I didn't know why. I didn't know it was depression. I didn't know anything was wrong with me. I just knew that I was, I thought that I was different. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that other people were going through this. And I just wondered why I have to go through it. Jordan didn't even have a word for how he was feeling, but he believed he had to battle depression alone. He didn't talk about it with his mother. And And I grew up with just my mother. It was just like me and her. And she was very like sensitive and emotional too. So what I learned to do is when I was sad, hide it from her because I didn't want her to be sad too. He didn't share with his father. My my dad was in my life, but not regularly. So it wasn't like I had that male figure who I could go to and say, hey, like what the hell is going on with me? And though he was popular, played soccer at a Division I school and had a lot of friends, Jordan believed he had to hide his depression from his peers too. Because when you're that age, you just want to be normal, right? And you're finding any way possible just to be a normal kid, to let somebody know that 
it's just not an option. So I, I did feel like I like I had to hide it. I, I mean, I saw it as like a weakness, and in my mind, you never expose your weaknesses to the world. So, like I said, I, I was I was putting on like that mask of being the strong black man. So even if there was options, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna try them out. Instead, like many in pain, Jordan self-medicated. Always was like an athlete, so I always was told to stay away from drugs and alcohol. So I did for a very long time. Um, and so I think I was like about 17 and I was at a party and I took my first like shot of alcohol. And a lot of people in AA talk about this, but like their first drink being like a spiritual experience. And it was exactly like that for me. Like I can remember it. Um, it was like God came down and like just said to me, like put his arm around me and said, hey, you're going to be all right now. Like this is your solution, right? Like all the anxiety and all that self-doubt and all that depression just kind of faded away. And then I didn't have to rely on anybody, right? You don't have to rely on anybody when you're drinking alcohol. All you got to rely on is your ability to make it to the store and have the money to purchase it. So like me learning from a young age not to rely on anybody else because that's a weakness, it was, it was perfect. It was like the perfect setup. Perfect, Jordan says, until it wasn't anymore. Um, until the alcohol turned on me. Um, and I ended up in AA and ended up in the hospital and ended up in the mental health complex, um, ended up in jail. Uh, that's when I, I finally realized I not only have to treat my depression, but I also have to treat what turned into alcoholism. But no, I didn't, I didn't give in easy. It wasn't like I just came to... Um, it's not like I just ever said, I think I have depression, let me take this medication or go to therapy. That was never a thought that was an option for me. The options Jordan did utilize don't all make sense in his current sober, non-depressed world. So every time I would drink and I would be depressed, I'd turn off my cell phone. I didn't want anybody to know where I was or what I was doing or that I had relapsed or, you know, I, I just wanted to be solitary. And along with my depression came severe, severe, severe anxiety. So I would hear somebody like open the door or knock on the door or ring the doorbell or somebody be um, downstairs, you know, just normal noise that any person who's ever lived in a duplex hears. And... I would hide in closets a lot. I mean that—that's what I—that's what I did. It was—it was crazy. I'd be in my own house, hiding in my own closet, and I didn't. And I was so sick. Like I thought that that was like that was a viable solution. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be until Jordan was hospitalized after a suicide attempt that he was formally diagnosed with depression and put on medication to manage it. But your medication doesn't work when you're drinking along with it because mm -hmm. alcohol is a depressant. Um, does it work now after I stopped drinking and I've been three years sober? Absolutely. And then I take it every day and I make sure I take it every day and I know that I need it. Um, but back then, even when I was taking it, I took it sporadically. And I think that's a problem with a lot of people, right? They think that they just can take it here and there or they have to they can take it and still drink or take it and still use drugs or take it and not go to therapy so I was taking it sporadically but I wasn't seeing the benefits of it and then that was just an extra excuse for me to say hey this doesn't work anyways 
Jordan existed like that until one fateful day when sitting in his place, which he says was dirty and dark because his electricity had been cut off, Jordan begged God to take him. You know, I had done that a million times, so after begging to die, I was like, okay, if you're not going to kill me, God, can you please like give me a solution or, or help me, help me out of this? Um, I don't know why my mom showed up. She, she often showed up to just like check on me, but she showed up. His mom brought him to the hospital for detox, and this time he was ready. And then that's when I made the decision to start taking AA super, super seriously. And that's kind of how I got sober. And that was like about three, three years ago in a couple months. And ever since then, I've been sober and then now able to manage my depression correctly. Congratulations. Yeah. That is not the end of Jordan's story. It's another beginning. In addition to what Jordan experienced and learned over those years, he also earned a master's degree in social work, which he puts to work daily as part of a county crisis mobile team. I think in the back of my mind, I always knew that if I got sober, I could, that could be like my greatest asset is like, because that's what you hear nowadays from, from anybody who's unwilling to go see somebody and willing to go get help is the person on the other side is not going to understand what I'm going through. And that's a perfectly legitimate concern because they probably don't know what you're going through because they probably haven't gone through it because if they have gone through it, they wouldn't be on the other side of the desk, right? They would have not made it that far because few, very few people do. Um, so I think in the back of my mind, I always knew that that could be my strength that and it is my biggest strength that when I go to a scene now or I go to meet with somebody who's suicidal or who's in their addiction, I can say I have been right where you have been. And I think that that automatically makes a connection that can't be broken or develops a trust that there's there otherwise wouldn't be. It's a really powerful shift when the things we considered our secret weaknesses or dirty laundry become keys to open the locked part of someone else's life and struggle. There's also something personally healing about providing something you needed but never received. Part of the reason why I was hiding in the closet is because I didn't want to go to I didn't want to go to a hospital. I didn't want to go anywhere to get help. That was the last place I wanted to be because that exact reason I felt like people there were judging me and people there didn't understand. And hospitals, I mean, if you've ever been there with super bad anxiety or super bad depression, they're not very therapeutic places. I mean, I think that's something that we have to address as a nation, right? Like, it's not a therapeutic place to be. Um, nurses are usually like burnt out. They have a million patients. Doctors, the same thing. You got a hundred different machines beeping. You know what I mean? It's just not a therapeutic place. And then the other thing is, you're at the lowest state in your life and you just don't want people to see you like that, especially somebody who hasn't been in your shoes, right? And I think like 95% of the people there probably haven't really been through what you've been through. So from a place of experience, we asked Jordan what someone listening might need to hear, acknowledging that it can be nearly impossible for a mind that's being poisoned by depression to take in a message of hope. 
me and you are like living testament that your your life can take a complete 180 and when people were telling me that i didn't believe that like the problem with people with depression and with alcoholism and addiction is they think that they're unique and the the truth is that you're just like everybody else right like in your head you you want to make yourself out to be like a unique situation like i'm like this because my mom did this or my dad did this which could be true but that doesn't mean that somebody else hasn't also been through it right and somebody also has gotten around it right and found a solution so your solution might not be the same as their solution but there is a solution out there and there is a way to completely change your your life around and i know that's and and i feel bad even saying that because i i remember myself and i'm like remembering myself in that closet if somebody would have said that to me i'd have been like off like just leave me alone off like i don't believe you mm-hmm. because i can't believe where i'm at today in my life you know it ain't when i say it's a complete 180 it is a complete 180 one of many ways jordan's turnaround is tangible is that he now works in the very county mental health facility where he was once placed on emergency detention and i remember that and i remember one time they determined that i'm still like a threat to myself and i had to go up on one of the units um and i remember the guy the psychologist on the unit who talked to me every day and i don't know if i'm sure he doesn't remember who i am but i remember him and i pass him in the hallway all the time and i say hi and like in the back of my head i just like smile and think cuz he was really he was nice to me and you remember stuff like that jordan sees people at their absolute lowest at police scenes in jails and hospitals and he makes a point to really see them through knowing eyes it's the kind of work that challenges the most caring heart jordan feels lucky to do it I just I like it. I mean, I like being there for that person and I like to be I like when it comes off of, out of my mouth. I have been where you have been because I know how powerful that is and I know a lot of these people have never heard of heard that statement. Um that's just such a powerful moment when you get to say that. You kind of you kind of see people's reaction and they they kind of like you ever like held your breath and then get to breathe again. like that's like that's the reaction. So that's why I say I get to do it. I mean, it's just it's just a good feeling, right? And so I went from a person on my floor with a nobody around hiding in my closet with a bunch of vodka bottles around thinking about if I have enough bleach to kill myself um to a person who gets to get up every morning and help somebody, right? So, yeah, I get I get to do that. I don't take for granted any moment, you know what I mean? Yeah, I I get to do that for sure. I've come a long long way and I'm grateful for that. So Terry, I am so glad that Jordan was willing to share his story. I love several of the messages that he talked about. One was at that possibility of doing a 180. Mm-hmm. I love that he discussed the fact that addictions can develop as a way of, you know, self self-treatment for depression mm-hmm. and then becomes yet another thing that has to be addressed and treated. 
And then mostly what I love is that what started out for Jordan was seeing honesty as a weakness and then turns into his superpower. Yeah. Which I think is, is what this podcast is all about. It's, I just love that. I like that too. And I like that he was able to, to see that and then to, to reframe that whole phase of his life. Because if he hadn't gone through those experiences, he would not, in fact, be connecting on the same level with the people he is helping every day. That's right. That's right. And I love the way he ended the interview where he said, when those words, I've been there, basically, um, come out of his mouth, that people's reaction in his mind, he sees that they haven't been able to breathe and suddenly they can exhale because they feel seen and heard and not judged and they realize that this is a shared experience even when it's a terrible one yeah and what is it about having to go through something um and being able to share that with someone that helps them to feel like i'm not going to judge you Mm -hmm. if you've been where i've been Mm -hmm. you probably know something that nobody else knows about where i am Mm -hmm. and and yet we make this 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 leap to i can trust you i can feel safe with you i don't think you're going to judge me Mm -hmm. it's interesting it reminds me of when i very first started therapy and i was in the waiting room and i looked across and saw someone i knew and my first impulse was oh i'm so embarrassed Mm -hmm. they know it and then i was like wait here you too we're (laughs) both here and we're both taking care of ourselves so we're the last people who would judge each other because we're both doing what we believe you know is at least an attempt to change some some part of our lives or ourselves for the better and yay us Mm -hmm. you know but it's that same kind of thing where you at first are I don't know what the word is, you know, ashamed or, or self-judging or stigmatized or, you know, you can put a lot of words in mm-hmm. there. But then all of a sudden you realize, oh, you get it. Right. You get it. You are where I am. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. So next week we will be back and we're going to have a really touching story, I think, about a couple and the wife has bipolar disorder and the husband is her primary support. And they're just going to share some things that they learned at that point. They had been married for 17 years and they learned a lot about how to sort of co-deal with this essentially third entity in their relationship. And they have a lot of really good information. So we will be back next week with that story, which is seeing beyond your partner's diagnosis. Looking forward to that. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression, or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen.